Colossians chapter 2, verse 20 to chapter 3, verse 4. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you. We're in a series on the Apostle Paul's letter to a group of Christians who were living in the ancient Roman city of Colossae. And uh, we're starting to get really into the heart of the letter. Paul here is beginning to lay out for us a true Christian experience, uh, which is to say he's beginning to lay out true spiritual experience. Because today, spirituality, you know, it's hot, right? It's chic. It's in vogue. Um, uh, you bring up the topic of religion with people. How do they respond? Boo. But if you bring up the topic of spirituality, how do people respond? Oh, spirituality is good. Helps a lot of people. I'm a spiritual person. Interest in spirituality is it skyrocketed really over the last 20 or 30 years, and especially less conventional forms of spiritual practice. I read an article in the New York Times by David Brooks a couple of weeks ago. He uh, noted that according to surveys, 22% of Americans um, would still identify as mainline Protestants, traditional religion, but 29% of Americans believe in astrology. Or Wicca is one of the fastest growing spiritual movements in our country. In 1990, there were only 8,000 Wiccans. Today, there's over a million. Um, perhaps the most um, predominant spiritual trend in our culture, uh, culture and country right now is mindfulness meditation. There are millions and millions of people practicing mindfulness meditation today. The reality is that, yes, maybe formal religious activity is decreasing, but people are still deeply, deeply spiritually thirsty. Why? I was reading a description recently um, about ancient Greek-Roman culture, which would have been the culture of our Colossian friends. And the scholar that I was reading, he describes um, ancient culture like this. He says that for people who lived back then, it seemed that the universe in all its vastness was beyond human comprehension or control. 
being governed instead by a host of indifferent powers. Human beings could do little more than struggle against the relentless tide of fate. For them, personal and material insecurity, not to mention moral and spiritual indeterminacy, those things characterized the human condition, which often amounts to little more than a fruitless search for meaning that ends with death and oblivion. In response to this unsettled state of affairs, mortals sought some understanding of and access to the supernatural powers that controlled their lives. Change maybe a couple of things about that, and we could be talking about 21st century Western culture, right? A fruitless search for meaning that ends with death and oblivion. The world we live in feels like a frightening Um, uncertain, dangerous, amoral, Darwinian place where anything could and probably will happen to you, and you are definitely not in control, which means that it's no wonder that that even in our modern, secular, scientific um, world that people still look for comfort, meaning, hope, and some measure of control over their lives through spiritual practices, whether that's 13,000 witches casting a hex on Brett Kavanaugh, or millions upon millions of people practicing mindfulness meditation. So here's the question. Is there a true spiritual path? Paul, in this letter, is laying out for us a true spirituality, a Christian spirituality. Now, we can't see all of it this week, and and even just in this letter. You need the whole Bible for this. But, But here in chapter at the end of chapter two and beginning of chapter three, Paul is beginning to lay out a Christian spirituality for us. He's beginning to lay out a true Christian life for us. In the second half of this letter, um, he's showing us true spirituality. That claim rankles a lot of people, and and I understand why. But, But let's look at it, all right? Um, Especially because it's very possible that we don't understand what this is in in the first place. So let's see three things about a true spirituality this morning. We're going to see that true spirituality submits to a story, it operates by grace, and it sees the world through resurrection eyes. True spirituality submits to a story, it operates by grace, and it sees the world through resurrection eyes, okay? First, it submits to a story. Um, As I just mentioned, you know, this claim of Christianity, that Christianity is the one true path to God, that really bothers a lot of people. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father through me, but through me. And Christianity has always followed Jesus um, when he says that. And that bothers a lot of people. Um, And I get it. And when I say I get it, I mean, I really do get it. When I was 30 years old and I was exploring different spiritual options, uh, that was the thing that bothered me most about Christianity. How can Jesus be the only way to God? But look at what Paul is showing us in this passage. He says, um, at the very beginning, Paul shows us that everyone lives their lives according to some story, some truth claim about ultimate spiritual reality. He's warning these Colossian Christians about some false teachers, and they were advocating uh, an alternative spirituality. So you notice he says, don't submit to regulations. In verse 20, he says, if with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still in the world do you submit to regulations? 
do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. This alternative spirituality was advocating um, a practice that involved a lot of rules, a lot of regulations. And Paul says, don't submit to regulations. Now, interestingly, that phrase, submitting to regulations, is a word that means to let something dictate to you or to to let something have authority over you. Um, For you nerds, the the word in Greek is dogmatizo. We get our English word dogma from that word. And, And we all know that in our culture, dogma is really kind of a negative thing. We say, ooh, dogma. That's mind control. That's, that's groupthink. That's narrow, closed-minded fundamentalism. Stay away from that. You, everyone should be free to think for themselves. Stay away from dogma. But here's Paul. You know, he's not talking about Jesus or Christianity. He's talking about this alternative spirituality, and he's saying it's still a dogma. Here's the point, friends. Everybody submits to a story about spiritual reality. Everybody gives some story of spiritual reality authority in your life, even people who think they don't. There's no such thing, really, as being neutral or agnostic about spiritual reality. So, for instance, you know, there are a lot of um, different views out there about diet and nutrition. And it's really hard to know which one of them is right. There's so many competing stories. But at the end of the day, there's no such thing as being agnostic about your diet. Why? Because at some point, you're going to have to put some food in your mouth. The same thing is true spiritually. Every single day, we're going to make decisions in life. You're going to make decisions about what's important, what to value, what to do, what to give yourself to, what to oppose, what to support, what to make sacrifices in life for. Your life is filled with decisions. And every single one of those decisions is going to be based on some view of spiritual reality, whether you realize it or not. It's going to be based on some way of answering the foundational questions of existence. Is there a power that created this world or not? And if there is a power, is that power good? Is it personal? Uh, Is it something else? But perhaps most importantly, how do you know? Where do you look for answers to those questions? What has authority in your life? Because you maybe say, well, I look to science. Science is the only way we can have any reliable information about anything. Okay, but how do you know that? Because that statement itself is not provable by the scientific method. What is your authority for that? We've, we've all got authorities in our lives. Or maybe you're someone who likes to mix and match different spiritual traditions, different spiritual practices in order to come up with something unique for yourself. That is a very popular approach to spirituality nowadays. Researchers call that unbundling. In fact, one article that I read about this said that someone like this might attend yoga classes, practice Buddhist meditation, read tarot cards, cleanse their apartment with sage, and also attend Christmas carol concerts or Shabbat dinners. So folks like that might say, look, I don't submit to any one particular spiritual story about spiritual reality. I look to all of them for wisdom. But don't you see, that's still a story. It's still a very specific, absolute religious truth claim that says the most important thing um, about spirituality is not whether it's true, but whether it works for you. 
It helps some people. Maybe some people benefit. Maybe other people don't benefit. But hey, that's okay because everybody should be free to determine that for themselves. That's still a very specific view of spiritual reality. And if you believe that, okay. But again, how do you know that? What authority have you, are you looking to for that in your life? Whether you realize it or not, every single one of us has a story about spiritual reality. And whatever that story is, we submit to it. We give it authority over our lives. Everyone has a dogma. So if you're here this morning and you're, maybe you're skeptical about Christianity. Maybe you're thinking, look, I, I, I'm, I'm really um, apprehensive about this idea of one true spiritual path. People should be free to think for themselves. No one should submit to any dogma. I want you to understand, please understand that in reality, it's impossible to do that. Every single one of us submits to some story about spiritual reality. We all have a dogma and we're going to submit to it. We're going to give it authority over our lives. And that's the first thing we see here, that true spirituality submits to a story. But secondly, true spirituality operates by grace. Now, here's the thing. Up until this point, we've been talking about everybody, right? Everybody, I just said, submits to some view of spiritual reality. But now we're beginning to narrow it down a little bit. Because how does Christian spirituality operate? How does it work? One of the first things Paul does in our passage is, um, in, at, the, at the end of chapter 2, rather, he begins by showing us how Christianity does not operate. So in verses 20 and 21, Paul asks them, why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Again, this was an alternative spirituality. These false teachers were advocating, and it involved a lot of rules, a lot of regulations, especially with regard to food and sex. They were saying, hey, stay away from this. Don't touch that. you got to discipline yourselves. It, it, this always reminds me of that movie, Chocolat, with Juliette Binoche and Johnny Depp. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's about a free-spirited woman who comes to a little French village that's very rigid and uptight. They've got a lot of rules and regulations, religious rules and regulations, especially the mayor. He's probably the worst one of all. And the movie takes place during Lent, which means there's even more rules and regulations. And so in one of the scenes, the mayor's in his office working at his desk, and over on the corner of his desk, there's a plate with some toast and some delicious, luscious, sweet, red jam. And, and you can see he's trying to ignore it, but he keeps glancing over at it nervously. And, and, and you could just see this look of tortured longing on his face as if to say, I want it. Oh, I want it so bad, but I can't have it. To eat that jam would be a sin. And so, you know, when we think about religion and we say, boo, that's one of the reasons, Right? We think religion is nothing more than a bunch of rules and regulations, and if you obey the rules and the regulations, and if you, you really devote yourself to that, then, then God is going to be pleased with you. God is going to love you and accept you and take you to heaven when you die. A lot of people think that's what Christianity is too. It's this rigid, joyless, uptight, rejection of earthly things, and like hyper-focus on some future existence in a disembodied heaven. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians think that's what Christianity is too. But look at what Paul is showing us here. In verse 20, he says that being a Christian means 
dying to that approach to life. In other words, when the gospel invites you to, um, to die to the old way of life and find new life in Christ, understand that is not an invitation to adopt a whole new set of rules and regulations. That is precisely what Paul is warning us against. A lot of people, you know, when they get interested in Christianity or some other spiritual practice, a lot of times, um, here's what people think. They say, you know what, I really need to make some changes in my life. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get disciplined. I am going to start going to church. I'm going to start reading the Bible. I'm going to adopt a Christian ethic. I'm, going to, I'm even going to serve in the church. And if I do that, then God is going to be pleased with me. God's going to love me and accept, with, accept me. That's what Paul is warning us against in this passage. He's saying you don't connect to God by keeping a bunch of rules. You connect to God by grace. But here's the question, or a question that would possibly come up. Does that mean that we can just live however we want? Does that mean that we just, um, we can eat whatever we want, have sex with whoever we want, whenever we want? Absolutely not. And we're going to get into that topic in a lot more detail next week. But here's why this is so important for us to understand. A lot of times we will reject the religious story with all of its rules and regulations and will adopt the exact opposite story which says, let's not have any rules at all. Everyone should be free to live however they want. That is probably the most influential story in our culture today. It's the story of freedom. It's, you know, it's the story of Queen Elsa from Frozen. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. But Paul is saying, that's not a true spirituality. He's saying, here's the thing, it's still a story and we still submit to it, right? We're not free, even if that's the way we live. Paul is saying that, that either um, living by a bunch of rules or rejecting all of the rules, that both of those are ways of being equally lost because at the end of the day, both of those are ways of getting and keeping control. And that is the real problem that Paul is addressing here. Did you notice at the end of verse 23, Paul, he's talking about all of these rules and regulations, and he says, they have an appearance of wisdom, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The real problem Paul is saying is the flesh. Now, when we hear that word, you know, it's hard for us to take off all our 21st century filters when we hear that. When we hear the word flesh, you know, we say, oh, I know what Paul is talking about. Nudge, nudge. <laughs> titter, titter. He's talking about sex. Well, not really, not, or at least not primarily. Let's take our 21st century filters off. When the Bible talks about the flesh, it could mean different things depending on the context. So one of the ways the Bible uses the word flesh is just to talk about our physical human bodies, especially our, our human weakness, our, our, our frailty, our finitude. But one of the other ways, one of the main ways the Bible uses the word flesh, especially when Paul uses the word, is that flesh refers more to an attitude or an approach to life. When Paul talks about the flesh, one of the main ways he's talking about it is this attitude or approach to life that says, I know what's best for me, not God. And I will do whatever it takes to get what's best for me in my life apart from God. It's all about 
control. And remember what we said at the beginning. We live in a world that feels like it's out of control. And so we have all these things that fill our lives and fill the world. And they're wonderful things. They're good things. But we look at them and we say, oh, if I could just get that in my life, then I wouldn't feel like everything is so out of control. If I could just get that in my life, then I'd really be living. Then I'd be happy. Then I'd be satisfied. Then I would be fulfilled. So we look around at this world, and you know how it is. Do you ever feel anxious? Do you ever get furious? Are you ever angry or afraid? Do you ever feel lost or hopeless or bitter or resentful? Why? It's because there are all these things that fill our lives, and we look at them, and we're always tempted to say, that's where real life is found. And it may be different things for, for different people. So for some of you, it may be family or children. You look at that and you say, my life. Or it may be, for others of you, romance or relationships, my life. Or for others of you, it might be your performance or your achievements, whether in work or at school or athletics or even your religious performance. We look at it and we say, my life. But it's all about control. At the end of the day, we want control over our lives. Friends, you know what that is? That's the flesh, but that's sin. Sin is, you know not primarily or not just doing bad things. That is far too shallow a view of what sin really is. Sin isn't just doing bad things. Sin is seeking really good things, but doing it on your own terms. It's seeking really good things apart from God. That's what Paul is warning against uh, here. That's the real problem that Paul is addressing here. And so he says to be a Christian means to die to that approach to life. So in verse 20, look, look how he puts it. He says, with Christ, you died to the elemental spirits of the world. It means dying to the flesh, dying to that approach to life that's always grasping for control. But here's what I really want us to see this morning. This dying is not so much something that you do as it is something that is done for you. Do you notice how Paul puts it? He says, with Christ, you died. It's not just you died, but with Christ you died. That means that Jesus is the one who dies. You get the benefit. It, it means that, that that dying is not something primarily you do. It's something that is done for you. And it's even deeper than that. When Paul says, with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, literally what he says is, with Christ you died from the elemental spirits of the world. Friends, that's rescue language. You died from those things. It means that the essence of Christianity is not primarily keeping a bunch of rules or rejecting a bunch of rules. It means that the essence of Christianity primarily is being rescued from a way of life that keeps you in bondage to this grasping need for control in all these different areas of our life. And that's why it's grace. Because it means that you are not saved primarily by keeping a bunch of rules and regulations. That, that really ends up just being a way of twisting God's arm. That's just a way of saying to God, hey God, I did everything you asked me to, now you owe me. I've been a good person, you owe me now. But neither is being saved rejecting all of the rules. Because remember, both of those are ways of trying to get and keep control over our lives. And if you do that, either one of those approaches to life, you are still going to be in bondage. You're, going to be, you're not going to be free. True spirituality, Christian spirituality, 
is a way of life that says you do not achieve the life you're looking for either by keeping rules or rejecting rules. You receive the life you're looking for by grace from the hand of God. Jesus is the one who dies. He rescues you. You, We get the benefit from that. Now, what does that do for us? Practically speaking, there's one more thing I want to look at this morning. We've seen that true spirituality submits to a story and that it operates by grace. But lastly, true spirituality sees the world through resurrection eyes. Sees the world through resurrection eyes. Don't be distracted. We're testing your vision right now. Remember the question that we began with. In a world that feels really out of control, where do we find meaning and hope and comfort in this world? Um, A lot of approaches to spirituality say that, well, you know, the world is just temporary. Or they'll say, well, the world is just an illusion. Either way, this world is full of pain and hardship. So if you devote yourselves to certain spiritual practices or if you devote yourself to spiritual disciplines or if you obey a set of certain rules, then then you can escape this world and find an eternal bliss in some future heaven. That's the way a lot of people think about any kind of spirituality. And, And at first glance, it would appear that that's what Paul is saying at the beginning of chapter three. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. It would be easy to think that Paul is saying the same thing as every other spiritual practice. The world is bad, reject the world, and just focus on heaven. That's, it would be easy to think he's saying that, but that's not what he's saying. It can't be what he's saying. Because we just saw a few verses earlier that he was saying, look, this attitude that, that, that rejects earthly things, that despises the things of the world, that, that says you got to discipline yourself to avoid these things, and that if you do that, you're going to attain some higher spiritual state. He says, that's the thing you've got to reject. You've got to stay away from that. He just told us not to do that. So what is Paul telling us here? The key is in verse 1. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. In other words, the point is not so much to focus on heaven itself as to focus on the one who rules from heaven Jesus Christ. Because notice Paul says, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. As I was studying, all the commentators, all the scholars, they point out that Paul here, he's pointing us to the sovereignty of Jesus. In the Bible, to sit at someone's right hand, that's an image of power and authority and control. And notice he says, it's the risen Jesus who's sitting at God's right hand. In other words, that The resurrection of Jesus should shape the way we see everything, not just in our own lives, but in the whole world. When we look at the world, things feel, they look like they're very out of control, right? Especially if we look at it through a political lens or a global lens, it feels like everything's out of control. And so what we do is we look around the world at at these wonderful things that fill our lives and we think, no, no, this is where real life is found. And if I could just get this or keep this in my life, then I'd have real life. Then I would really be living. Then I'll feel like my life is more in control. We look around at the world and everything feels out of control. 
And so what, what we are is we're tempted to say, well, God must not really care. God must not be good. God must not be powerful. Heck, God might not even exist. How could God exist and let all these things happening? Our tendency is to let an out-of-control world shape the way we see God. But look at what Paul is showing us here. He says the resurrection is a promise that says everything that happened to Jesus Christ when he was resurrected, one day that's going to happen to the whole world. Because the Bible calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection. It's an Old Testament or an ancient world way of saying that Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a preview of coming attractions. That God is not going to destroy this world. He's going to renew this world. God cares about this world. And one day, he's going to renew this world. Friends, here's really what this all comes down to. If we were going to just put all of this in one simple phrase, here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, don't let an out-of-control world shape the way you see God. Let the resurrected Jesus shape the way you see an out-of-control world. Those are two different ways of looking at things. Is it don't despise the world and let this out-of-control world shape the way you see God. Get a heavenly perspective on everything that's going on in this world. Let the resurrected Christ shape the way you see an out-of-control world. Now, let's just be honest, okay, and acknowledge that that's really hard. In fact, Paul acknowledges that difficulty in this passage. Notice in verse 3, he says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden. In other words, your life, this wonderful promise that we have, this promise of life, this resurrection promise of renewal, Paul is saying it's hidden with Christ in God. So we look around at the world around us where everything feels like it's out of control, and we're tempted to say the promise can't be true, but we're wrong. Why? Because when Jesus was hanging on the cross, it looked like God was hiding The people who were standing there, it would have been very easy for them to see Jesus hanging on the cross, for them to think, God's not in control. God's not at work in this. God doesn't care. We do the same thing. We look at a world that feels out of control. We get angry. We get furious. We get frightened. We get um, upset. We get anxious. We feel like everything is out of control. And so we look at the things that are in our life, the things that we love, and we say, if I could just get control over this, keep this in my life, then I wouldn't feel so out of control. We let an out-of-control world shape the way we see God. The people at the cross would have done that. We do that. But on the cross, Jesus Christ looks at you and says, my life. And let me be really clear about something. Jesus Christ is the God of the universe who created all things, and from all eternity he has reigned from heaven. There there is never a moment in which it, it would have been true to say that there is anything Jesus Christ needed. There's never a moment in which it would be true to say that that Jesus lacked anything, but it would also be true to say that there was something Jesus did not have in heaven, that he determined that it was worth becoming a human being and coming to earth and dying the most shameful, agonizing, horrific death in the history of humanity. What was it? It was you. It was us. Jesus looks at you from the cross and says, my joy, my heart, my love, my life. 
And I give my life for you in order to give my life to you. In other words, the cross, friends, the cross shows us a God that when it looked like he was most out of control, when it looked like he didn't care, when it looked like he was absent, when it looked like he was doing nothing, at that very moment, God was most in control, most present, most caring. On the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus says, I give my life for you so that now you can look at me and say, my life. And understand something, that does not mean that we hate the things of this world. Don't let an out-of-control world shape the way you see God. Let the resurrected Jesus shape the way you see an out-of-control world. When Jesus becomes your life, that does not mean that we love the things of this world less. It doesn't mean that we value them less. In fact, it's the opposite. When Jesus Christ becomes your life, what that does is, is now that enables you truly for the first time really to love and serve all the things of this world, the things that fill your life, whether it's your home or your family or your children or your relationships or your work or your career or your money, whatever it is, you are now able to, to love and serve those things really for the first time because when Jesus is your life, it sets you free from the bondage of demanding that those things be your life. If you do that, ironically, you're not loving those things, you're crushing them. And their inevitable failure to live up to your demands is always crushing you. Friends, if Jesus Christ is your life, you're free. You've been set free. You've died to that crushing, burdensome need for control in your life. I heard a story from another pastor once um, about a woman named Louise Reiner. Uh, Louise Reiner was the first person uh, ever to win the Academy Award for Best Actress two years in a row. Very few people have ever done that. Now, when she was performing back in the 1930s, in those days, um, movie stars weren't free agents. You, you had a contract, and your contract was with one studio. And so Louise Reiner, uh, she was under contract with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, MGM Studios. In fact, she lived in studio housing on studio grounds with other um, notable stars from the day, people like Greta Garbo and Joan Crawford. But the reason you've heard of Greta Garbo and Joan Crawford and not Louise Reiner is because in those days, the studio told you what roles you were going to take, and Louise Reiner wouldn't submit to that. She wanted roles that had more artistic integrity. And the head of the studio, Louis B. Mayer, told her, you're going to take the roles that we tell you to take. And she said, no, I won't. And the very last conversation they ever had, Louis B. Mayer said to her, Louise, you're going to take the roles that we tell you to take. We made you and we can kill you. And she looked at him the head of one of the most powerful studios in Hollywood, and she said, Mr. Mayor, you did not make me. God made me. And she walked out. It was the end of her career. You know what she was saying to him? Essentially, she told Louis B. Mayer, you're not my life. Fame is not my life. Success is not my life. Now, I don't know whether she was a Christian, but that is a profoundly Christian thing to say. Friends, when Jesus is your life, that means now you can look at all the other things of the world, and they're good things. You can look at them, and it completely transforms your relationship to them. 
Friend, here's what it means to set your mind on Christ. It means to get the story of the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It means to get that story so deep in your bones, to saturate your life so much with that story that when you're anxious or furious or resentful or when you're feeling out of control because all of the things in this world are tempting you to look at them and say, my life, it means you are now able to look at them and say, you're not my life. You're wonderful, you're good, you're beautiful. I love you, but you are not my life. Christ is my life. When that happens to you, when you submit to this story, when you operate by grace, when you see the world through resurrection eyes, all of a sudden now there's a new confidence in your life, there's a joy in your life, there's a security and a steadfastness and an endurance and a peace in your life, and there's a, a greater commitment in your life now to, to not to reject the world or to seek to escape this world, but to pour yourself out for the good of this world because you know where the story is going, the renewal of this world. The more that story gets into you, the more the story comes out of you. Friends, don't let an out-of-control world shape the way you see God. Let the resurrected Jesus shape the way you see an out-of-control world. He's your story. He is your grace. He is your life. He's everything. Let's pray.